is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And our own Alex Cortez went on a road trip to an event called Open Call, where Walmart opens their doors to over 500 entrepreneurs to come to their headquarters what they call the home office in Bentonville, Arkansas, and pitch their American-made products to get into their over 11,000 stores. It's a great democratization of the buying process for folks who may not know anyone at Walmart, and it's a part of Walmart's commitment to buy an additional $250 billion worth of American-made products in a 10-year period. And now Alex brings us this open call story. It was 10.30 a.m. and it suddenly got louder as the entrepreneurs came out of the rooms where they had their half-hour pitch meetings. And a Houstonian named Mike Watts came out and showed me the sheet that he just kissed. So yeah, we've got our, uh, our, our sheet here. We've got our sheet here. It says, yes, thank you for a great meeting. We look forward to continuing this journey. And uh, they want it. They want our product. We're going to be able to add jobs immediately in our local hometown. Today we have 32 full-time employees. Based on this meeting, we're going to be able to add more immediately. I expect it maybe about 50 employees by Christmas. So I just am so excited that, that that's 50 families, right, that are now going to have a job. I can't even express to you how excited that we are. It's a dream come true. It really is a dream come true. Mike's company, Love Handle, has a phone grip that you slip your fingers through. It is better than anything else on the market and will now be in a market called Walmart. I think I'm just going to go around here and high-five people and uh, pass out all these love handles to anybody that's willing to take them. We literally brought uh, 2,000 of them with us, and we've passed out a few hundred already. So we're going to spend the rest of the day sharing the love with everyone that's here in Bentonville. And I'm probably going to do a bunch of social media videos and just share the enthusiasm. Fixing they probably go live and uh, jump and do some backflips. I don't even know if I can do a backflip, but I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs> I had my first job at 15 because I wanted to have some money. Yeah, you want a car? Fine. Earn some money, go buy a car. You want to go take a girl out on a date? Well, you better have some money to do it. So 15 years old, you know, I went to the mall, and uh, they just opened up a baseball card shop. I was like, man, I love baseball cards, and I love being at the mall because that's where the girls were. So I, I got my dream job there at 15, and next thing you know, I became manager. And so by the time I was 18 years old, I was running 14 employees there, all older than me hiring and firing, and uh, had a shoe store and a you know, clothing store that I was running and operating. So I learned about what it takes for people to buy, like how to sell, how to merchandise, how inventory works, what margin is, and all those things at a very early age. And I think that planted a seed in me that I wanted to be able to, to be in that space because it was so exciting. So I left corporate America when I was 30 years old. And I've been a full-time entrepreneur for the last 14 years. Uh, when I left, I had three small children at home. Nice corporate job, very comfortable, but it just wasn't for me. Uh, it was, you know, 3% raise every year, and there was a ceiling there that I couldn't break through, and I just felt like I could do more on my own. And so I want to thank my wife for believing in me from day one, the day I left my corporate job. And she's been side by side. Like, even before then, we had a side hustle going. I was selling stuff at home and garden shows every weekend, every holiday, every sick day. I was trying to make some extra money so she could stay home with the kids. 
But back then, she was traveling with me, with our first child. He would sit underneath the table all weekend in a home and garden show watching Veggie Tales on a little VCR player that we carried around. I'm dating myself with the VCR. And uh, he would sit under there and watch videos while we were up top. And the customers never knew. Like, there's tablecloth. They didn't know he was under there. And he's under there, and we're just hustling, trying to make extra money. And eventually, he couldn't travel. We had another child. And so all that leading up to the point where we're finally like, let's make a go of it. We found this patented pivot trim trimmer head and it solved another problem for weekend warriors that were cutting their grass this is a trimmer head that would fit any trimmer but the lines don't break and they last so much longer and so you know you can go out and cut your whole yard and never change the line and we're going to make a go of it with that and she's like uh, let's do it like let's put all our chips in the middle we walked away from health insurance we walked away from everything that would have possibly uh, been what traditionally called security and we went for it and it's really paid off so i encourage people to to take those risks out there that might seem like too big i'd say the biggest risk is to do nothing at all to sit complacently behind and let other people dictate what your life is and mike's business partner his old man thought the same way he had also left his job he worked in a chemical plant for years and became a piping designer and then they offered him a package out and that was i'm looking at him as a mentor he took the money that they gave him in a package, 18 months pay, and he took all that money. He bought tables, chairs, tents, and margarita machines, and he started a party rental business. And that party rental business has been in business now for over 25 years. Me and my dad, you know, side by side, right? How cool is that, that we get to partner up together? And he lets me be the boss, right? And he's the cheerleader, and, and it's a great setup. And then eventually we cashed out and took an exit from our largest distributor. But then when we sold the company, I went home, he went home. And we were kind of sad. It's like selling a child. You know, it's like, not exactly, but it, it's, it's not easy. Because you've invested so much of yourself personally into building it up. And then to give someone else the keys, and then they show you the door. It doesn't matter how, what that wire transfer looks like. It's, it's going to hurt. But it's part of the process, and I think that the best healing that can happen is to do it all over again. Like... Yeah, you can only, like, play around the house and go fishing, you know, so much, right? We love fishing, but you can only go so much before you, you're trying to figure out, like, what do we do next? And so I was on the hunt for the next new thing, and when I found this product, you know, I'm not smart enough to invent anything, right? I'm on the hunt always for great new products, and when I find one, I'll meet with the inventor and say, look, I'm a passionate marketer. I want to give your product life. I want to take it to the world to make a difference, and I'll make you a millionaire in the process. So that's what we did with this product. It was invented by John Murphy in Minnesota, and we partnered with him five years ago, and this one, we're not selling this one. So anybody out there listening, it's not for sale. Uh, this is going to be a cash cow that's going to create jobs for a long time in the future. I think Love Handle will be a story that we hear about and a household name that you're going to know for, for you know decades to come. And we've been listening to Mike Watson. He's the co-founder of Love Handle. And what a father-son relationship we're hearing. Because let's face it, this dad let his son and the mother too, go out and go be an entrepreneur and go start and build things on his own. At 15, he was, well, doing what he loved, working with, well, baseball cards and girls. And the next thing you know, by 18, he's managing employees and managing something. He's not an infant at 18. He's an adult, and the family's treating him as such. When we come back, we'll continue with Mike Watts, the story of Love Handle, and the story of Walmart and their open call here on Our American Story.
And we continue with Our American Stories and the story of Walmart's open call, where over 500 entrepreneurs pitched to get into their stores and where we met Mike Watts, who co-founded a phone grip company called Love Handle with his old man. Let's return to the story. We've invested everything we had into this idea, literally everything. We had a big exit. We pushed all our chips back in the middle on this idea because we believed in it. But did their family and friends believe that they were crazy for risking everything in the nice life that they just earned? Some did. Some did. Some some said we should just ride the wave, you know, into off into the wild sunset. But we told ourselves, we promised ourselves this time, we're like, look, it's going to be hard. There's going to be tough days, and there's been a lot of tough days, but we're going to enjoy the ride. Here's Mike on their toughest day. We uh, ordered our first batch of product from China. We had $500,000 worth of product that came in, and they had gotten cheap glue, used some cheap glue, so the product just fell apart. We had to literally, no refunds, you know, it's not like Walmart, you can't take your back with your receipt. We, we literally loaded it in a truck, took it to the dump, and had to push half a million dollars worth of product into the dump, right out of the gate. And then we had no way to make any product. Like, we had no product to sell. It was, we had to go with no money. I, I went for no pay, with no pay, for four and a half years. Zero income. We paid all the employees, but me and my dad, we worked for free. Um, up until just very recently, I was finally able to draw a modest salary. And then I'll keep that going until there's you know, something happens in the future, but I'm really, I'm not in it for the money. Like when I'm in it to try to make the most out of my life. Like, I feel like I have a purpose in my life to, uh, to motivate other people to, to find their uh, dreams and to achieve those dreams. So maybe by hearing my story, someone else says, you know what, I'm gonna try that. I'm gonna, if he can do it, anybody can do it. And that's true. Perseverance, positive perseverance is, is what it takes. You have to be willing to get yourself back up quickly, dust yourself off, and then find a new path. And ultimately, it's the best thing that could have happened to us because it forced me to say, I'm going to find a way to make this in America. And so now our product is top quality. It'll always be top quality. Everything's made in-house 100%. So we can still make it at a cost that's almost exactly the same of what we can make in China. And even though... Uh, the product that we would get out of China would be far inferior. We've actually had to go in and design our own elastic, the weave, and the components. We had to design it from the bottom up to be for this purpose only because we're carrying around $1,000 phones. And I'm telling my customers, you can trust this thing because you can. Uh, the adhesive is the top grade. The elastic's the top grade. The welding process that we do to, to, to put them together is tested and it's top class. So it's a really, really high quality product. For that toughest day and all days, Mike has a source of strength that's beyond anything that he could muster. God's opened up so many doors for us time and time again. We've, and, and, and he's closed doors that, that we thought should be open, right? And we didn't have, we don't have control of this whole thing, right? I'm just trying to do the best I can. He's the CEO. I'm the janitor. Everybody knows me as the janitor at work, right? Because I want to be a servant leader. I really do. And learn from the way that he led. And so we very much believe that he has a purpose with this company and that he is going to grow us in ways that it's going to 
glorify Him. And so having that sort of long-term faith takes a lot of pressure off of me, right? Because now if we succeed or we fail, you know, in quotes, uh, it's not on me. It's, it's Him, right? So I'm just trying to do the best I can to lean in and step forward into the dark room and do the hard work and then try to hopefully see some results uh, before I check out. One of those doors opened had Shark Tank's Damon John walking through it. He reached out to me. I was a dream of mine to be on Shark Tank, right? Like, big Shark Tank fan. I've seen every episode. Uh, we auditioned twice and made it to the second round both times, but never actually got to go on set. He was starting to use our product and fell in love with it, just like all our customers do, and was ordering it on our website. But that, you know what? I think the lesson here is that as an entrepreneur, like I was, that was a late night. Everyone else had gone home. I'm sitting there looking through one order at a time to see who's, who's ordering, what are they ordering? Like, trying to understand our customers. And then I see that, and it said the Shark Group, which is his branding company in New York City. And I, I knew who they were. I was like, that's Damon's company. I was like, oh my goodness, so there's a phone number. I was like, call, get Simone. Simone works for Damon, build a relationship with her, send a bunch of product, print some with his new book title on it, with the Shark Group on it, you know, and then now I'm impressing him. And next thing you know, the phone rings. He gives us a call. He's like, look, I don't do this. I don't need to do this. I don't have, I got people bringing me products all day long. Your product is that good. We got to work something out. I was like, great. So we'll put it back and forth. I didn't, I didn't just jump at it, um, which I think, again, earned some respect from him because, you know, he's, we're like cut out of the same cloth. He's a, just a straight, 100% pure thoroughbred entrepreneur. And so am I. And so we've got to got that common ground for us. And so he, uh, we worked out a deal that made sense. So now it's a DMD products. Dave's my dad, right? He's the patriarch. Uh, I'm Mike, and then we got Damon John. So uh, we call him Uncle D, Uncle Damon. Uh, but yeah, so it gave me access to his whole team. Uh, I was actually supposed to be on the set of Shark Tank on Monday, uh, just backstage. Like, so that was my dream to get on Shark Tank. He was going to let me like come backstage and hang out with Lori and Mark Cuban and Mr. Wonderful and, and all that stuff. But the, the, my flight got canceled, so I didn't get to go. But I still, again, I think there's a better plan. Maybe I'm going to be a shark one day. You never know. But first, Mike had to pitch to get into this big place called Walmart. We're prepared. We came in prepared. We've been practicing. They gave us some information about make sure you're storytelling, right? Tell them a story. And so we really refined that going into it. I wanted them to tell them a story about the inventory that we had to push and why we make our products in America, right? And I wanted to tell them a story about how I made a deal with Damon John from Shark Tank and how he's a business partner of mine now. And uh, we had a video clip from Damon that, that we played in there addressed to them, right? So we came out guns a blazing, man. I want to genuinely say that this has been an amazing experience. From the moment we arrived at the airport here, the, the greeting that we were given, and the fact that they genuinely care about American jobs. Like, it's not lip service here. They really care. And for them to uh, invite us up and to create an environment where we can show, you know, our little American-made product to them, and then now they're going to be able to give us hope to where we're going to be able to share that product and passion that we have with everyone. It's, it's just been amazing. They're a genuine partner. They're honest. They're just, I'm so excited to, to work with them. They're, they're the dream retailer. And Mike also has a dream employee named Scott, who was standing next to him. Well, Scott's great. You know, Scott uh, has been with us now for four months and is doing a killer job. Uh, if it wasn't for Scott, we wouldn't be here today. That's the short story. 
He, he went and he uh, proactively, I didn't ask him to, proactively submitted for us to go on open call. And so he took that initiative, which was huge, and because we would literally would not be here today, right? This, this whole thing. Good job, right? And he's constantly, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? He's the last one to leave with me at night. And it's, you know, having people like that on the team that feel as much like it's their business, even though he's only been here for four months, you know, it's invaluable. So, you know, to entrepreneurs out there, like, find people with that passion. Like, you can teach everything else, but if, if you can find people with passion and drive and a little bit of wit about them to find their way, then, then you're going to be successful. But you can't have Scott. He's mine. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been listening to Mike Watts, who's the co-founder of Love Handle, and what a story he had to tell about his life, about service, and about his father, and about Walmart. I mean, the remarkable thing, the story that's not told about Walmart, we know that they deliver lower prices and save people lots of money. And we know that they employ, well, over a million people, the largest employer in America. And they've raised the minimum wage without the government forcing them to. They just did it. And companies do this, folks, because they want to keep their people. But the biggest thing we didn't know was what we learned from Mike about the fact that if Walmart gives Love Handle, his company, an order, Love Handle gets to, well, employ more people. And so that's the downstream employment from our big American companies that nobody talks about. And this is where Walmart becomes a great, great corporate citizen. And by the way, we also got to hear Mike talk about service and being a good servant. In the end, that's what free market capitalism does. If you don't like the restaurant, if they don't serve you well, you leave. You get to vote with your feet and your wallet. And it's what makes, well, it's what makes this country great. The story of Walmart's open call and the story of Mike Watts, the co-founder of Love Handle, here on Our American Stories. And by the way, we're always looking for your stories about entrepreneurship and about free markets and about, well, your business story, if you have one, or a friend or a relative or just someone in town who runs a great store. All these stories, quintessential American stories, here on Our American Stories. I have a new single that's been out maybe 10 days or so. For those of you uh, who have not heard it, I will tell you that it was written and produced by a young man named Lionel Richie of the Commodores. And it's called Lady. Lady, I'm your knight in shining armor. And I love you You have made me what I am I am yours And we continue here with our American stories We're about to hurtle off into one of our favorite regular features The story of a song That was just Kenny Rogers you heard 
introducing back in 1980 a new song of his written by a songwriter, a young songwriter named Lionel Richie. If you notice, the audience didn't scream and yell or applaud because, well, they didn't know who he was yet. He wasn't Lionel Richie yet. Now let's go to Greg Hankler for this installment of the story of a song. It's hard to believe, but one of Kenny Rogers' biggest hits first appeared as an extra track on his 1980 Greatest Hits album, an album that would end up topping the country and pop album charts. The success of Lady also boosted Lionel Richie's career. The writing and production work was Richie's first outside the Commodores and foreshadowed his success as a solo act during the 1980s. Kenny Rogers once told an interviewer, The idea was that Lionel would come from R&B and I'd come from country and we'd meet somewhere in pop. Lady became the first song of the 1980s to chart on all four of Billboard magazine's singles charts for country, Hot 100, Adult Contemporary, and Top Black Singles. Here's Kenny Rogers telling the story of Lady at the Lionel Richie and Friends tribute concert back in 2012, with Richie sitting front and center. To say I'm excited about being a part of this is an understatement, to say the least. But you know, Lionel, first of all, I'm so proud of you, and I'm so happy for you. You know, you deserve what you're getting here. Lionel and I met 32 years ago, right here in Las Vegas. But you know, I'm so excited about this because, now for those of you who are young, aspiring songwriters, who want to learn how to pitch a song, Lionel is your guy. I called him from the Riviera here, and I said, Lionel, I'd love for you to come over and write a song for me. And he said, I don't think I have time. I said, well, I, it's going to be a part of a greatest hits album. It'll sell, I think, a minimum of four or five million records. He says, it's seven o'clock tomorrow night, okay. So he came in at seven o'clock, and we had this little upright rinky-dink piano in the dressing room, and he starts to play, and then he says, before I do this, I have to tell you, I pitched this to the Commodores, and they turned it down, which I thought was an interesting approach to selling a song. So he sits down, and he starts playing, and he goes, Lady, wait, wait. <laughs> and the rest of it, all he had was the one word. I said, how could they have turned that word down, I asked you. So we go in the studio, six months later, we're recording. I finished the first verse of the song. And I'm sitting looking at the lyric sheets and there's not a second verse. And I said, wait a minute, where's Lionel? I swear to God, he's in the toilet writing the second verse. They said, he's at his best under pressure. So I am so excited about being here, you know. And uh, you're not just a friend of mine, but the song you wrote, was truly a changing point in my career. It's one of the most identifiable songs I've ever done. I'd love to have you come up and sing it with me if you will. Come on, come on.
Great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And what a story. What a story about the pitch. What a story about how Lionel and Kenny came to make this song the hit it became. And what a hit it became. And I just will always picture in my mind that scene of Lionel in the bathroom, locked up, 
under pressure, so to speak, to come up with that second verse. The story of his song, the story in the end of a friendship between Kenny Rogers and Lionel Richie, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and up next, a listener's story from KWKC, 1340 AM in Abilene, Texas. Jay Moore is a retired history teacher who's known for his fascinating and humorous presentations about his own city's history. He hosts them in their historic Paramount Theater, and over 900 people regularly show up for these presentations, which sounds crazy, but that's what great storytelling can inspire. And although he wouldn't say it about himself, the guy is like the resident town historian. And today, Jay brings us a story from the area. It's a deeply personal one about his grandma. Here's Jay. It was after my grandmother had passed away that I realized just how deeply her lack of education embarrassed her. I think it was a secret shame that she carried. In her naughty pine panel den, there were bookshelves that were filled with hardback books. That was the room that she used the most, watching her soap operas or crocheting, working a jigsaw puzzle, visiting with family members. But I never one time saw her with one of those books in her lap. Following her death in 1992, it was my dad who came to own the contents of those bookshelves. And so one day I sat down to look over the books and see if there were any that I might enjoy reading. The first book I picked up was the historical fiction of Catherine Marshall that was titled Christie. On the first page, I saw in my grandmother's familiar handwriting that she had written this. This is one of the best books that I have read. For that reason alone, I thought I might like to read it as well, and I started a stack to take to my car. Picking up another book, I noticed the same handwritten notation in a 50s-era novel. Ditto for the third book and the fourth book and really nearly all the rest. It seemed odd that she would record such thoughts as though she herself might one day pick the book back up and be reminded that it was worth reading. But it slowly dawned on me. She was not writing introspective analysis nor trying to convey the quality to a future reader who might pick the book from her shelf. She wrote comments in the front of books she never read because her elementary-level education shamed her to write those fake reactions. She wrote them to throw others off the scent. When Granny was 14, she took a trip west from her home near Waco, Texas, to visit her family in Runnels County, which was about 120 miles west. On that trip, she met a neighbor of her relatives who was nine years older and who would become my grandfather. 
The following fall in 1923, they were married. Granny was 15 and my granddad was 24. They lived in a two-room board and batten house that my granddad built on some land that his parents had given to him so that he could farm. It was in that house that Granny gave birth at age 16. I never knew if a doctor or even a neighbor was available to help with the birth, but in the end, the baby girl was dead. A small box was fashioned to serve as a coffin, and my grandfather, alone, took the box to the cemetery east of Winters, Texas. He placed the child in the earth next to another infant. That infant was his own brother, who also had died at birth. So he buried his daughter to the side of his own brother. Sixteen is young to be a mother, much less one who is grieving. And I wondered just how my grandmother coped inside that little house. By the time she was 18, she had a healthy baby boy, followed by five more sons. When I was growing up, we were often at Granny and Granddaddy's house. Upstairs at the end of their hall was my grandfather's office. On the wall was a large, framed family tree that a draftsman friend had drawn for him. It was comforting to see the generations diagrammed in the logic of family connections. Their sons were the branches, and my dad was near the tree's middle. But it was the first branch, the one down low, that was intriguing to me. A very short branch that was just labeled infant. My grandfather died in 1985, and in just a short time, my grandmother's sons had convinced her to sell the house that she had lived in for 35 years and to disseminate all the furniture and the dishes and the family tree. She moved to a smaller house, but before long, she moved from there to a nursing home when she was 84. During those days of her living in just one room with commercial furniture and a view of an empty field, I stopped by several times each week, and my grandmother and I had conversations. Some of them were short, but others were long enough that by the end she had fallen asleep. We discussed our family, church, what was happening in the news. I don't recall how it was, but on one visit, we talked about that family tree, and I brought up that lowest branch. Granny told me the story of the unnamed baby girl and the burial and those difficult days that she went through so long ago. She bemoaned that she had never visited the grave, and now she couldn't even remember the name of the cemetery and was only vaguely familiar with its location somewhere east of Winters, Texas. But she knew a woman still living in Winters who would know. And I sensed that she was asking me to go on a mission for her. That is how I came to drive 40 miles south from my house to pick up Leona Billups one day at her small home. Leona had known my grandparents for most of her life. She had me drive east on a farm to market road and she told me of the one-time community known as Truett. The one-room school community was long gone, and really the only remnant was the Truett Cemetery. Finally, we came across a green sign pointing to Truett Cemetery, although it was actually pointing at a gate into a farmer's field. And since it was raining, we didn't go any farther. The next day, I went to see Granny, caught her up on Leona's life and all about her family, 
and I told her that I knew the approximate location of the cemetery, but that I would have to go back and open the gate and drive down the rutted path. Granny told me then that her infant daughter was buried beside the other baby, my granddad's brother, but she said she was not even sure if that grave was marked. On my second trip south, I took a friend. We arrived at the gate opposite the Truett Cemetery sign. We drove slowly through the tall grass between tire ruts before coming to a second gate. Soon, we saw a fence at the end of the half-mile path. The fence surrounded a square plot of land with a wide silver gate that had welded metal letters spelling out Truett on top. And just inside the gate were some headstones that were visible, but others were far back among cactus and yuccas and grass that seemed prime real estate for snakes. And we hadn't brought anything like hoes or shovels to hack at that growth or to ward off reptiles. I stepped in to begin a hunt for a headstone I was not sure even existed. The markers were spread far apart and there was no evidence of any row or path like there is in most cemeteries. I gingerly stepped over cactus and cautiously examined the etched stones to see if there was one with my last name. Towards the back corner, I used my heel to push over a yucca growing right next to a small stone, and behind the plant was a weathered inscription cut into a sandstone marker, reading, Infant Son of D.S. and M.F. Moore, Daniel Spurgeon and Mary Francis, my great-grandparents, the grave of my granddad's brother. A smile of relief came, for there was the spot where my grandfather had laid his daughter nearly 70 years before. The next day, seated by Granny's bed, I watched her face register a strange relief. An 84-year-old mother who had never forgotten a daughter, who had never breathed life. Granny had finally found the child that she had given birth to when she was just 16. A few days later, she told me that she had decided to put a marker on the grave, and she asked me to go to the monument company to choose one and to pick one similar in size to the one marking the adjoining grave. She said that she wanted the marker to have a lamb on it. And she had decided on a name for her infant daughter. The name was Dixie Lee. Dixie was my granny's name, and so I asked, for you? No, she said. Dixie Lee was the name of Bing Crosby's wife, and I always liked her. A few weeks later, I returned to Truett Cemetery, followed by a truck from the Monument Company. But because I was not sure on which side Dixie Lee was buried, my grandmother had told me to just choose one. I chose the north side, putting her that much closer to her mother. For the past 30 summers, I have returned to Truett Cemetery into the grave of Dixie Lee. And there I've cleared the growth and smoothed the ground, marking the site of Granny's never forgotten child. My grandmother, Dixie Moore, died only a few months after she found her daughter. And my goodness, what a beautiful story and a special thanks to Jay Moore. And what a thing to do for his grandma and for himself and his own family. She finally got to name her baby. And she did it with her grandson. Spectacular. I hope it inspires so many of you listening to get to know your elders and for them to get to know you. That's what we do here every day. None of the nonsense of the typical media, none of the sensationalism, 
Just beautiful stories about a good and beautiful people. And thanks to Robbie for doing a superb job on this. And thanks to our friend in Abilene. You know who you are for bringing this story to us. So beautiful. Send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org, please. We love them, and we will produce them and play them. The story of Jay Moore and his grandma and Dixie Lee here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history. And your stories, too. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Up next, a great storyteller himself, and we're here to talk to the author of a book called The Godfather Legacy, the untold story of the making of the classic Godfather trilogy. And by the way, it features some terrific stills. Go to Amazon.com and get it. And Harlan Lebo is the author. He's also the author of 100 Days. And you can get that at Amazon.com as well. A terrific book about four big events in 1969 that changed the arc of this country. A great cultural storyteller about this great country. Harlan Lebo joins us. Thank you, Lee. You bet. Let's talk about The Godfather. And, you know, in the opening, you said this. Francis Ford Coppola has often said that the story of The Godfather is a romance about a king with three sons. Talk about that. The Godfather really is very much a family story. It's certainly not a family picture by any means in the traditional sense of a rated G film, but it is a movie about a family. Uh, there, Of course, there are many things about the mafia and violence in the film, but at the heart of the story are the struggles within a family, a very powerful man, his three sons and his daughter, and in particular... The struggles of Michael, his youngest son, who wanted to stay out of the family business, as they call it, but winds up, of course, at the end of The Godfather, the film and the book, both uh, as powerful and as ruthless as his father could have ever imagined. So it's very much a family picture. In that way, it's not a mafia picture. It's a family picture with the mafia as a backdrop. And maybe this is why some of the other, quote, mafia pictures didn't succeed they didn't lead with that family story first. That is true. I mean, it's the same way as looking at Gone with the Wind. It's Gone with the Wind isn't a movie about the Civil War. It just has the Civil War as a backdrop. It's about the struggles of a woman during the Civil War. But The Godfather is the same way. The whole issue of family and trust and love are very much a part of The Godfather. In fact, they're integral to The Godfather. Michael, the youngest son, played by Al Pacino, never would have done what he did, which is become part of the family business, if it was not for his love of his father. And that's a real torment for him. But it doesn't stop him from becoming the ruthless killer that he does become. Indeed. And let's start where we should always start, and that's the beginning. And let's talk about a guy named Mario Puzo. He's the author of the book. He was born, as you note, in your book, in Hell's Kitchen, New York. And it's very different today, Hell's Kitchen, than it was when Mario Puzo grew up. Describe his, his upbringing, where he grew up and how he grew up, and a little bit about his life. Right. If you look at Hell's Kitchen or other parts of New York, for example, where they filmed The Godfather Part Two, they were not good parts of New York then. But 
The city has changed and continues to change, uh, and it's it's much nicer now. But Hell's Kitchen was the classic tenement section of New York City for many decades, and that's where Mario Puzo was from. He was young. He was poor. Uh, he eventually became a civil servant working in New York, uh, and at the same time was a struggling fiction author through the 1960s. He wrote good books, but they didn't sell very well at all until he decided to pick up an idea that he thought about all along the way and was mentioned just a bit in one of his other books, which is the experiences of a family involved in the underworld of New York. And that's when the idea for The Godfather came along. And this was a massive bestseller for Puzo. Talk about that. Describe some of the remarkable success of this book. Yes, the book itself was one of the great page-turning books uh, one summer that it came out. Apuzo had decided to give writing one last shot. He uh, maxed out all the credit cards. Uh, he also got a little money from Paramount Pictures, which we can talk about in a minute. But um, But this really was his last shot at writing. He sent off the manuscript. He came back from a vacation. And he came back to discover that not only had the book sold, but the paperback rights had sold for about $400,000. And in 1970 money, that's a lot of money. So the book was a gigantic hit, number one on the bestseller list for months and months. Uh, and it was a natural fit, you would think, to be made into a film. But that's where other problems started, and we can talk about those in a minute, too. Yeah, let's do that, because in the end... The film business had not had great success with what are so-called mob movies. Uh, they'd failed in the box office, but yet Mario Puzo gets an advance. Talk a little bit about uh, that process. The process of giving writers advances wasn't done very often, but it was done most frequently by an executive named Peter Bart, who is still very active in the film business. Right now, he is a columnist and has been for years writing some of the most intelligent work about the film business and entertainment in general. But Peter believed very strongly that some writers needed a little help from now and then to keep going as all struggling writers do. Uh, he had already supported other books that had done very well, like love story, which did very well for Paramount pictures. Uh, so Peter Bart supported Puzo with a few bucks now and then, uh, and they held on to the rights to make the, to make the Godfather the book into a film if it turned out to be a success. Well, of course, it turned out to be a huge success, which naturally led it into becoming a, a film project in uh, 1971. So in the end, Peter Bart was putting markers on certain authors and hoping they'd pop. And every once in a while, he might get a really great discount. But that wasn't why he was doing it. He was just trying to keep, it sounded like, good writers in the stables and close to him. Yes, he was. And it worked very well. I mean, writers felt loyal to him as they should have. He had faith in them, which he should. Uh, and it worked out very successfully on at least two movies for Paramount Pictures, uh, two of the biggest movies of the 60s and 70s, Love Story and eventually The Godfather. And we're talking to Harlan Lebo. The book is The Godfather Legacy, the untold story of the making of the classic Godfather trilogy. And when we come back, so much more from Coppola to Pacino to Brando, and, well, stories you're just going to love. This is Lee Habib, Harlan Lebo, The Godfather. The stories of both continue here on Our American Stories.
We continue here on Our American Stories with Harlan Lebo, author of The Godfather Legacy. Let's talk next about another important person, his name, Francis Ford Coppola. It turns out that as everybody was looking to place this with a director, as you write, no one wanted to direct this film. Who is Coppola? Why did he matter? Well, you're right. No one did want to direct the film. Uh, Even though The Godfather, the book, was a huge bestseller. It was thought at the time that a movie about the mafia would not be very successful. And primarily, that's because what Paramount wanted to do with it. They had supported Puzo as a writer, but they didn't want to support the film any more than any other relatively low-budget, shoot-em-up picture about crime. And as a result, there were no takers on directors for the film and very little interest in the project. That problem was compounded by the fact that a film called The Brotherhood had come out at about the same time, which had huge, a huge budget, big stars, uh, and it flopped because, again, it was just not well thought of as a topic to make movies about the mafia. Well, eventually, the movie was offered to Francis Coppola to direct, and Coppola was a young, just-getting-started director. He'd only had, uh, I think, three films at that point and had written another one. But part of the reason they went to Coppola was he seemed solid enough as a director, but he was also Italian-American. And that was crucial to the project at the time. And we could certainly talk about the problems within the Italian-American community in the 1960s and early 1970s with Hollywood. But the short version is that it was viewed within many Italian-American families that any time an Italian-American person appeared in a film, it was in a crime role. And there were no non-crime roles, legitimate characters who were Italian-American in films or on television. Well, Paramount came around to the idea that one of the ways to solve that problem is to have an Italian-American director. They went to Coppola, they offered the project to him, and he turned it down too. He came around because of the same things we were talking about a few minutes ago. He finally did read the book all the way through. He only read sort of the smutty parts up front before he declined. But then he realized the same thing that we did, which is that the movie is not about the mafia at its core. What it's about is a family and the problems of a particular family and the struggles of that family. That's the story at its core. And if you focus on Michael, the problems of the youngest son, then it becomes even more interesting. So Coppola agreed to do the film with many conditions, uh, and he was able to convince Paramount to buy in. Let's talk about Coppola just a little bit more. He had polio when he was young, and this, I think, would really change him and, and perhaps even shape him, because as a young boy, curiosity and his, and his retreat into his own world may have become actually something positive. Also, his father, uh, who, as he put it, I lived in a household of a jealous man, and it changed me. I said, I'm never going to sit around waiting for my break to come. His father was a conductor. I'm going to make it, and I did. So talk about his dad. Uh, He grew up in Detroit, Coppola, and also polio. 
Copley did grow up in Detroit uh, and, and a few other places as well. His father, Carmine, is a very, was a very talented musician and composer, but he always felt like he was waiting for his break to come, like he was waiting for that knock to come on the door. Uh, and it never did, or at least it never did until his son helped him later. Uh, and Coppola realized that you just can't wait around for these things. You need to go out and make your own breaks. And he did make his own breaks. And of course, here was a break that had been handed to him because of the talent he had developed and he turned it down and then finally did accept it. But, um, he made very strong demands about how the film needed to be made. The, the primary demand, of course, was that it be filmed entirely on location in New York, which is a very expensive proposition. At that point, the studio wanted to make it either in studio or in, on the streets in Los Angeles, which would have been much cheaper. They had a very small budget in mind for the film. And of course, by today's standards, the budget was very small. But by the standards then and the struggles within the motion picture industry in the early 1970s, it was a very small budget. Coppola got more. Uh, he also got the right. Keep in mind, The Godfather is a huge book uh, and has many subplots. And he made the case that he was going to focus as much as he could on the trials and tribulations of the family. And he stood his ground. And that's and there were many times where he had to stand his ground over the next few months. Well, indeed, storytellers in the end focuses so much and point of view or, or what so much of artistic choices are all about. I want to quote from your book, and this is Coppola. I got into what the book is really about, the story of the family, this father and his sons, and questions of power and succession. And I thought it was a terrific story if you could just get out all that other stuff. And that, in the end, is what he did, isn't it? Yes, he did. Uh, the Godfather is a movie about violence and about, in some ways about love and about family. But it's one of the best American films ever made, or one of the best films ever made, about power and what power, how power can be used and how power can corrupt. Uh, and that, those are the elements that Coppola went for. And in all fairness, the movie was very, of course, very popular at the time. But even more important, it is a lasting treasure of American cinema. If you ask practically anyone the kinds of films they like or the films that they their favorite films, The Godfather is almost always one of the films that everybody everybody really loves. And it's true that you go from to experts, film experts, straight down to Joe Public, and all of us love this movie because, in some deep way, it speaks to all of us. All of us have a Fredo in the family, for instance. We just do. And what do you do with that older brother? who's not going to inherit the family pharmaceutical business, right? Or the, the family auto body shop. Um, these are real problems that occur. And I think that's what the, the, the Coppola's genius was, was making this a universal story, Harlan. It really was quite universal. The, uh, the issues of love and family and conflict are so clear in the film. I mean, let's face it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of violence in The Godfather. Of course there is. That's, that is part of the story. It's part of the culture. Uh, it tells the story in many ways of the family itself. But the problems within the family, in particular, of course, Al Pacino playing Michael and his struggles to stay away from the family business all fall apart. And that's the intriguing part of the story right up to the very end. What you do with the, the headstrong, violent oldest son 
that sort of takes care of itself about halfway through the movie when he's killed. But then always that the story of Fredo, the middle son, and and what happened to him or what didn't happen to him, how he was sort of left by the by the side of the road in many respects, that gets picked up again in much more detail in Godfather Part Two. Indeed. And you know, as you were talking about that that desire of Coppola to make sure that this shot this film was shot on location, he also wanted it to be a period piece, Harlan. And you wrote beautifully about this. I want to share just one little part, because this was expensive. When a New York City maintenance crew removed a modern concrete streetlight, it cost $250 to install an original Shepherd's Crook light of the earlier era and cost another $250 for the next. At the end of the shoot, the Shepherd's Crook light would be removed, again, another $250, and the ugly concrete modern light replaced for another $250. This was done time and again, a little detail. But to Francis Ford Coppola, all of these details piled upon one another created this authentic life for which this movie and this city could serve as a backdrop. And actually, I think New York City was a character in the movie. Oh, New York City absolutely is a character. If you ever want to see what New York City looked like in real life at about the time The Godfather was being filmed, see a movie called The Hot Rock which is a hilarious comedy crime picture with Robert Redford and George Siegel. That was shot in almost entirely on location in New York within months of when The Godfather was filmed. But it was a real problem filming The Godfather. The film was shot primarily in the spring and summer of 1971. And they were filming in 19, what was supposed to be 1946, 47, and 48. Well, that doesn't seem all that long before. It was only 23 years earlier, but it was a long time in the history of New York. And the city really looked nothing like it did in 1946. Um, and constant attention to detail and fixing the streets and putting up posters or big trucks to block things that were would otherwise be seen on screen was a constant challenge when making the film. One of the great pleasures of watching The Godfather is watching the detail of the film, uh, just adding extra details. Dean Tavolaris, the production designer, there's one scene on the streets of a, a tenement area where James Kahn's character, Sonny, the oldest son, beats up his brother-in-law because his brother-in-law has attacked Sonny's sister, the youngest in the family. Look around at what's going on in that scene, just at the decor and the, the posters of political campaigns and posters that are falling down and tattered away that have posters underneath them or the cars or the shepherd's crook light poles. All that detail was a constant challenge, but well worth it because The Godfather looks incredibly good and incredibly realistic. Indeed, and when we continue more with Harlan Lebo, author of The Godfather Legacy here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories. We're talking to Harlan Lebo, the author of The Godfather Legacy, and the next character in this remarkable film, well, it's Marlon Brando. And I'm going to read uh, from your book. It says, Coppola wanted Brando 
The Don, in quotes, is in the movie no more than 30% of the time, explained the producer, but we had to have an actor with the power and mystique to permeate those scenes in which he didn't appear. Brando had that blunt power. Why did Coppola want Brando and no one else for this role? Well, because of that blunt power. Actually, when you look at it now, I believe Brando's character is only in the three-hour Godfather about 43 minutes, something like that. But his aura is over every frame of the film. And he had exactly what it took to make that character of Don Vito Corleone come alive. Well, now we're looking at it in retrospect a lot of years later. Uh, then Brando was viewed by some as not bankable. So most of his films just before The Godfather had not done very well at all. Uh, he was also viewed as impossible to work with by some people who probably unfairly said that he was really very tough on the set and was a difficult, difficult for directors for many things, many reasons. He was not anyone's choice to be the Don, except for Coppola, who, who went for him, who met with Marlon Brando and Brando certainly wanted the part and created his own character right in front of Coppola's eyes as he envisioned the Don being. Keep in mind that, that, Marlon Brando is young when this movie is made. This is 1971. He was 47 years old. But he gave the character the gravitas, the dignity, uh, the power, and the authority that it really needed. And Coppola was right. And Coppola had to fight for practically every character. But the key characters he had to fight, fight for was first Marlon Brando, and then later Al Pacino. Well, let's talk about Pacino next. He was a young actor, an up-and-comer, not a large body of work, but my goodness, a fascinating one, both in cinema and in the theater. Uh, he was an up-and-comer and a real riser. But talk about Pacino. My goodness, for a lot of the time, Pacino didn't think he was going to keep his job. No, he didn't. And Al Pacino, it's so hard for us to think of it now, Al Pacino, the superstar, the legend of Hollywood. But in 1971, he was like many other struggling actors in New York with no work. You know, he would wait tables. He would put, he would put pamphlets on cars, uh, just trying to make ends meet while he got acting jobs and did very well on the stage when he did. But a lot of other people did too. Uh, he had made a couple of movies, including a superb role as a junkie in Panic in Needle Park. Uh, but he's small. Uh, he's not traditionally handsome. I mean, there were some of the studio who thought Robert Redford could play Michael, but Coppola knew better. And he tested endlessly for the part of Michael, uh, throwing Pacino's screen tests in as often as he could. But once Pacino got into costume, once he was on set, once his measured, reserved performance started to come out, I think people finally realized immediately that he was perfect for the role. Indeed. I'm going to quote from the book because this is what Pacino thought because he was just worried, well, beyond all measure. Quote, I was out, Pacino was convinced, until the murder scene in the restaurant shot on March 31st. Quote, they kept me after that scene, Pacino recalled. That looked pretty good, I guess, when you shoot a guy. They wanted me to assert myself. So in that scene, there's kind of an assertion, and that's the scene where he shoots the cop and he shoots those guys, drops the gun, and the next thing you know, he's off to Italy uh, to just avoid, well, capture by authorities. Uh, talk about that, that scene, because, my goodness, 
it is the one where his his performance comes to life. It really does. Uh, keep in mind that that Al Pacino's character, Michael Corleone, is struggling about what to do with his life. He's just out of the army. He knows he does not want to be part of the, of the family business, family business in quotes. But um, he also feels a duty to his father and feels that he needs to take care of the people who are responsible for having his father shot and severely wounded, uh, which he does. He murders a police captain and a drug dealer at a restaurant in uh, the Bronx. I think Pacino was probably getting a little behind himself at that point. Uh, the studio certainly thought that those scenes were fabulous, which they are. If you look at Pacino in those scenes, that undercurrent of rage and fear in those scenes as he's preparing for the two murders is un- unmistakable and unforgettable. But what really sold the studio were some of the first scenes that he shot, which were on the streets of New York with Diane Keaton, his girlfriend, Kay, as they were walking away from Radio City Music Hall, and he discovers that his father has been shot when he sees it on the headline of a newspaper. And that simmering concern and how he presents himself on screen in beautiful color close-ups by cinematographer Gordon Willis with his his very dark eyes and penetrating stare, that's what sold the studio. They were with him from the start. There was no question at that point. And that scene, somehow, we get innocence to experience... In almost a nanosecond, Harlan. Yes, he. It's in fact, it's really sad. You can see after you've seen the movie once, you see him walking on a street, and you realize before he walked past this newsstand, he was the carefree kid he was trying to become. And when he passes the newsstand, and Kay has seen the headlines, you know that it's all on the way down. Yep, everything's about to change. Let's talk about John Cazale. Because people don't know his name, but my goodness, he was in only five movies before, well, cancer took him too early. All five of those movies were Oscar-nominated pictures. Five for five. That's crazy. Who was John Cazale? John Cazale was a wonderful character actor. He played the part of Fredo, the misunderstood middle son, uh, as perfectly as it could possibly have been played, creating all kinds of conflict not as much in Godfather Part 1, but became integral to the story in Godfather Part 2. John Cazale was in five classic films of the 1970s. Besides The Godfather Part 1 and Part 2, he was in Dog Day Afternoon, The Deer Hunter, and The Conversation, five of the best films ever made. Um, so that's quite a legacy for a man whose life ended way too quickly. There's a great picture in your book of Robert Duvall, another great actor, holding up cue cards under his jacket with Marlon Brando reading from those cue cards. And there are cue cards all over the room in the set. And I'm just laughing. Who were those cue cards for and why were they there? The cue cards are for Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando was not a lazy actor, although some probably would have said he was. He was definitely a method actor. And he felt very strongly that for his style of acting, studying the script as little as possible and making it as spontaneous as possible was important for his roles. So for many of his parts, for all of his career after a certain point, he almost always had cue cards just off camera. And logistics of a movie set being what they are, sometimes the cue card can be right in front of you and sometimes it's right on the lap of the person that you're talking to. So they had cued cards everywhere. 
some of them big, some of them poster size, some of them just little note size sitting on a, a counter. It's too bad because those those cue cards are worth a fortune now. I'd love to have some. Yeah, just one would be great. You just, you know, memorialize it forever in your home. We're talking to Harlan Lebo. The book is The Godfather Legacy, the untold story of the making of the classic Godfather trilogy. And by the way, it features some never-before-published production stills. And go get this on Amazon or on eBay or wherever you can. If you love The Godfather, my goodness, you'll love this book. And Harlan has also written 100 Days And it's about four events in 100 days in 1969 that changed the world. And it's the moon landing, the invention of the Internet. It started there, folks. Also, the Manson murders and Woodstock, all within 100 days. Pick that up at Amazon.com or, heck, go to a bookstore, buy the actual book and read it. When we continue more with Harlan Lebo, this is Our American Story. We continue here with Our American Stories. We're talking to Harlan Lebo, author of The Godfather Legacy. Now let's get on to the filming of this movie, because it was quite a show in New York. It turns out when scenes would be shot, hundreds and hundreds and possibly even thousands of New Yorkers were rushing to these spots to watch history get made. And I think people knew something really big was happening. Oh, I think so. Uh, they didn't know Al Pacino at the time, but they certainly knew some of the other characters. But that's one of the fun things about being in either New York or Los Angeles, too, but especially New York because it's so much more compact. Because on a summer day, there's almost always something going on in the way of a movie being made, um, which was true for the spring and summer of 1971. The Godfather was filming in all sorts of places. And there's there's one scene when when Al Pacino's character uh, is being is waiting to be picked up and he's standing in front of what was Tut Shore's restaurant and he's standing right on the sidewalk all by himself. But what you can't see is 15 feet away, there are hundreds of people milling around watching the film being shot. Let's talk about one, let's, since we're talking about scenes, let's talk about a scene that Robert Town wrote. And Robert Town is a legendary script doctor And it's the scene where Michael and his father are in the backyard talking about life. And it's it's such a beauty and it's such a sparsely written scene. Talk about what happened. How why was town called? How long did he have to write this scene? And it may be one of the great scenes in movie history. It really is one of the great scenes in movie history. There is no question. It's two incredible actors facing each other as father and son talking about, in only a few minutes, uh, several key issues, not just the threat of to the life of the youngest son, Michael, and what might happen to him in a plot to overthrow him, but also the father's concern, the Don's concerns about why Michael's life had gone the way it did, and the Don's regrets 
about what had happened there. And that scene was written many times and no one was particularly happy with it. And finally it got to the point when they were making the film and they couldn't wait any longer to get the scene right. They had to call in Robert Town, who's written many scripts of his own, but was also known at the time and for years after as a great script doctor, someone who could come in, swoop in, save the day. And that's exactly what he did. He came to New York he read the script, he talked with those involved, and he took a scene which was only okay and transformed it into an absolute masterpiece of cinema, uh, which it is. Indeed. You know, with these lines at the end, I'm looking, you actually have a part of the screenplay here, and it says, Vito Corleone, I knew that Santino was going to have to go through all this, and Fredo, dot, 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 well, Fredo was, dot, 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 well, I never, and we all knew without saying anything, he said everything, right? And then he said, I never wanted this for you. I worked my whole life. I don't apologize. I take care of my family and I refuse to be a fool, so on and so forth. And then in the end, he says, well, there wasn't enough time, Michael. There wasn't enough time. And Michael says, we'll get there, Pop. We'll get there. It's just so beautiful. It really is. And Robert Town knew and for a long time knew the the key to writing any scene is often what you don't say. We didn't have to describe Fredo at that point at all because we knew that Fredo just had that undefinable, he wasn't right for any of this. Um, later in the scene, when the Don talks about how he'd hoped that Michael would wind up being governor or senator, Michael doesn't go into a long explanation of why that wasn't necessary. All he says is, another pesanovante which means another big shot, just like, eh, you know, it would have been just another big shot. It wouldn't have been anything important. It wouldn't have been for me. Um, what he would have done is left unsaid, but the point is, with two words, uh, he, he negates any of the possibilities of what he might have wound up being. And that's just beautiful writing. It is. And then beautiful acting. We have one last scene we'll talk about. There's Brando in the garden scene with his grandson, and this orange, and this is the actor's decision, right? I mean, this isn't Coppola. This isn't the script. Uh, this is the actor using an orange, well, to remarkable effect. Talk about that last great scene, Marlon Brando and that orange. This is the scene when Marlon Brando's character dies. He's in the, he's in the family tomato patch with his grandson, Anthony. It's actually his real name is also Anthony. Uh, and, the scene was scripted for, for Brando's character to die, but a lot of it was left to Brando and Anthony to work out in, in, well, actually for Brando to work out in, in interacting with Anthony. Anthony wasn't young and wasn't old enough to really act for himself. Um, and one of the things that Brando did was something from his own childhood was he took an orange, he ate part of it. And then like many of us, he, he put the rind in his teeth. And it made it look like a funny face. And he actually cut teeth into it. Uh, and it really scared Anthony. It genuinely scared him. If you see him on screen, he's actually scared by this. But it plays so beautifully as this tender, intimate scene between grandfather and grandson. And it's a wonderful contrast to what happens a few seconds later, which is that Brando's character, the Don, uh, passes away, falls into the tomato plants and dies. Uh, it's absolutely wonderfully shot. And by the way, just a, a little unsung hero of this film was Gordon Willis, the cinematographer, who shot every frame 
of the film as if it was literally a frame from a photograph or a painting. It is so physically beautiful, the whole film. It's wonderful. Indeed. Let's talk about the music, too. While we're at some of the other attributes, talk about the music, because, my goodness, I don't know that the movie is the movie without the music either. Well, one of the things that we haven't really chatted about is Coppola really felt strongly that to convey that sense of family is that there needed to be a lot of issues of legitimate Italian-American culture in the film. Uh, and, you know, they had meals and conversations in the film. There were many little touches about Italian-American culture. And what he felt strongly about, among many things he felt strongly about, was he really wanted to have an Italian composer create the music for the film. So he called on Nino Rota, the Composer probably best known for doing many of the best of films of Federico Fellini. And Rota wrote the music for The Godfather. And what a soundtrack it is. And it's not just what we remember. I mean, that opening scene in The Godfather, we get to see many Americans had never seen a Tarantella. They'd never seen right. it. The dance, not just the music, but the dance. Right. Some of that music was not Rota's music. That was traditional uh, Italian music. But yeah, the, the film opens at the wedding of Connie, the youngest, the youngest uh, child in the family and the, the only daughter in the Corleone family. You see great scenes of partying and festivities. And it's a real slice of Italian-American culture from the 1940s. Yeah, and even the word cannoli gets thrown in in one of the great improvised lines in the movie. Talk about that. You write just a drop about that as well. Yes, it is. That is a great, a great line. Uh, after one of the family henchmen, Clemenza, kills a uh, traitor to their cause, the one who'd sold out the Don and got him set up to be shot, they go into Little Italy in New York. Clemenza gets lunch while his boys wait in the car, and he picks up a package of cannoli. Then on the way home, they stop. And the traitor is killed, but the box of cannoli is still in the car. So that's one of the great lines from the film and from any film. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. <laughs> and boy, cannoli lovers understand the gravity of that, that uh, command as well. Let's talk about the box office success, because this could have been one of the first movies where folks lined up. Talk about that. I incredible as it may seem now, movies were not marketed the same way they are today. The idea then, and for way too long, was you would build up interest in a film by having road shows for it in a select number of theaters, as opposed to showing it in hundreds and hundreds of theaters, or thousands of theaters, all on one big weekend. And that's what happened with The Godfather as well, where they opened it in several theaters, or well, many theaters in major cities across the country, but not in thousands of theaters. And it was an instantaneous, around-the-block, for hours and hours a day sensation. Uh, absolute gigantic hit in the summer of 1972. Uh, later becoming the, the, the biggest box office attraction of all time. Made more money than any other film up to that time. But it was huge. And then, of course, when it opened wide, it opened wide and very successfully. And every actor got a career boost from this movie. Right, Harlan? Oh, absolutely. This was a huge boost for everyone involved. All, all of the, the younger characters, the people who played the sons, James Caan, uh, Al Pacino, and then an adopted son played by Robert Duvall, 
all became legitimate stars immediately. They were all nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Brando's career got a huge boost. Talia Shire's career at playing Connie, the youngest in the family, also uh, got a huge boost and went on to, to do all the Rocky films, among other things. Uh, this was a giant, a giant success story for everyone. Indeed. I'll close with the words of one of the producers. And these are the words, quote, Well, we got the cast we wanted and the budget was tight. That's true. But sometimes you have to be more imaginative to get what you want for less money. Beyond those two constraints, there was nothing else the studio put on us. Nothing. When the script was being written, that was entirely in our control. We had no constraints on what we shot. We got the cut we wanted. Even Bob Evans backed us on the length. After all the trouble in production, the irony of it is that the movie that we made is the movie that we wanted to make, and God bless, that was so. Harlan Lebo, thanks for the book. The book is The Godfather Legacy. Go to Amazon and get it. Also get 100 Days. That's available on Amazon.com, too. These stories both here on Our American Stories. (laughs) 